Welcome to Some Coding Required, a podcast from Twilio Syngrid about all things open source. Today's AMA is, what conferences should I check out to learn more about open source? Well, it just so happens that OSCON is coming up next week in Portland, Oregon, and that's my favorite open source conference so far. I mean, there's lots of others that are really important, especially if you're into a particular programming language. There's PyCon. There's all sorts of conferences that are specific to a particular programming language. But I like OzCon because it's a great mix of a whole variety of different open source technologies, lots of great speakers, lots of tutorials and after events, like sometimes they have a 5K run. I personally like to visit the showroom floor. There's so many exhibitors there showcasing all sorts of open source technologies. And sometimes you'll find live podcasters there as well. You'll find authors of really great books there, book signing. Um, This is a great experience. There's so many people that are wandering around there. Great hallway conversations. The energy is electric. If you look at the show notes, there'll be a link there if you'd like to join us. I'll be there presenting a tutorial on how to take a monolith app and break it down into microservices. And also uh, our sponsoring company, Twilio, they will be there as well. They'll have a booth and be able to answer all your questions about communications in your open source apps, things like SMS, voice, uh, email, chat, video, all of that good stuff. So uh, if you're in town, hashtag uh, some coding required and seek us out. And also, if you have any AMA questions that you'd like us to answer on the next podcast, either send an email to somecodingrequired at syngrid.com, or you can hashtag us at somecodingrequired on Twitter. Look forward to your next question. Our favorite open source project for this week in open source is Homebrew. It's one of those projects that you can't really live without if you're in the Mac OS ecosystem and you're trying to do any Unix-like programming. Homebrew makes it really easy to install packages that normally don't come with your Mac OS. Like for example, wget is a common one that they put on their web page, but also things like uh, Python, particular versions, or PHP. If you're trying to set up these things without mucking around with your global configuration. Homebrew is really great for that. It's also easy to create your own homebrew formula so that you can publish things and have other macOS users easily be able to download and utilize your application. It's a really great project. It's one of the projects where I learned from the maintainer about some of the trials and tribulations of maintaining um, an open source project. I caught one of his interviews on a podcast and he was mentioning how it was very difficult to keep maintainers because there were lots of negativity out in the community. And I remember thinking to myself, who could be negative um, with a project that's so useful? But um, as I've grown into the open source community, I've discovered that yes, there are these uh, few bad apples that can taint the experience for 
the whole community. But what's great is as you build out your community, you'll find that they'll rally behind just general positivity and those negative bad apples will be quickly weeded out. At least that's been my experience. I mean, overwhelmingly, the activity in the open source communities is positive and I think you'll find that as well. But I encourage you to go check out the homebrew package. The link will be in the show notes at github.com slash homebrew in case you don't already use it. If you're on macOS and a developer, uh, definitely check it out. Even if you're not a developer, check it out anyway. It will save you some headaches when it comes to installing your packages on your macOS. So today we have Jeff Lawson, CEO of Twilio today and co-founder. And as you know, OzCon is right around the corner. And a little interesting tidbit about Jeff. A few years ago, he gave a talk called Open Source is Dead at OzCon. So Jeff, uh, that is uh, tantalizing. I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. <laughs> well, thank you, Omar. It's great to be here on the podcast. Yeah, I know it's true. I, um, I did give a, a talk at OzCon. God, I think it was 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. And, you know, the title was something on the lines of open source is is dead. And, and uh, you know, I thought hopefully at least I'll get people in the room and then I can make my case. But, uh, you know, I'll just start with the background, right? So I'm a developer. I've been writing code. I started learning software, you know, what, 1995, basically when I started college. And, you know, I loved it. It just tickled that part of my brain that, that it just made a ton of sense. And I always love coding and then obviously it was interesting in the early days like I remember not totally grokking Unix initially you know I had grown up on Windows 95 and so was that and I remember in 99 I remember I was starting a company and I asked I had a guy I was like can you set up a Linux box for us and I paid him to set up a box I didn't even know how to install Linux at that point but then I started really diving in and learning how and you know I stopped paying people to compile software for me and I learned how to do it myself and then just really got into the whole world of open source and the just the richness the variety of projects and the, the amount you could learn by going in and seeing how people have built stuff and then modifying it. And subsequently, I built three companies prior to Twilio. And, you know, my first company was, you know, I'm sure like a train wreck of technology because I was just learning to code while I was building it. It was built in Cold Fusion back in the 90s, right? That was really even development. But then my uh, second company, you know, we started building and that was when I switched actually from Cold Fusion to PHP. I was like, oh, let me just learn something new. And I started writing uh, everything in PHP. And interestingly, I didn't just use PHP to write stuff. I was starting to use a lot of open source to run the company. And so for like everything that the company needed to do that wasn't something that I was building that was core to the company, there was an open source app that we were using. So of course, in all the software I was building, I was using basically the LAMP stack of Linux, Linux, Apache, uh, PHP, uh, what did I miss, MySQL. And, and just use those technologies for everything. Uh, and I built a lot of crazy stuff, actually, in the LAMP stack. In 2005, I built a single-page web application, point-of-sale software application. So a physical bricks-and-mortar retailer I had started. And we needed a point-of-sale system. And I we had initially bought one, like a Windows app, you know, like client-server. Really, you know, it was pretty cheap. But we pretty quickly realized that it didn't let us do the things we wanted to do. It wasn't extensible. The data, we couldn't get data in and out. 
And so we said, all right, let's build our own. And so I, um, a true story, the impetus to build our own was we were an extreme sporting goods retailer. So skateboarding, snowboarding, surfing, and down in Southern California, we got a contract to run the store at the X Games, which is like the biggest event of that whole world every year, right? And we got the contract with like three weeks notice. Apparently they had some other retailer bailed and, and they had nobody to run the store and somehow it landed on our lap. They're like, you have three weeks. If you want to run the store, it's yours. And so me and my co-founder were like, all right, let's do it. And so we set up a 10,000 square foot store in three weeks. We like, you know, merchandise and all that. And we realized we didn't have a point of sale system because it would have cost us like a lot of money. Like it was really inconvenient. Like the way you had to buy this old weird Windows software was through resellers. It was just, ah, it was horrible. And, and I just said, you know what? I've been itching to build our own point of sale because I know that we've been wanting to do it. I'm going to use this as an excuse. So I spent two weeks furiously coding and I built a point of sale system from the ground up in PHP as a single page web application that processed, I think in those two days, something like $10 million of, of, of sales. And, uh, you know, that was actually one of the most fun things I've ever done as a developer was like furiously in a, you know, two week period building, building a, a point of sale system from scratch using all, you know, using the, the lamp stack. And then after I did that, I, I actually rebuilt it because I made so I learned a ton, figured out all the things that, you know, kind of quickly that I needed to figure out. But then I used all that to say, okay, let me go build it right. Started from scratch and rebuilt it again and really did some interesting stuff. So I, I, what I loved about that period of time in my life as a developer was I was able to go all the way down, in the course of a single day, I would go all the way down to like the Linux kernel. And for example, I made it so the stores were running on essentially white box machines, like $100 Dell computers, because, you know, the point of sale machines of that era cost like $20,000. There were these hardened IBM, whatever. I mean, if you go into most retailers, you would see this like hardened IBM setup. And I was like, well, we didn't have the budget for that. I was like, well, let me just use white box PCs and make them really cheap. And so I would stockpile, there'd be like 20 in the back of the store and, and I would pixie boot them off the network. So that, and I lived in Seattle, I had stores in Southern California. And so I just made it so that I could administer everything from my home in Seattle. And so I pixie boot off the network. So I was digging into how does that work and what are the drivers I needed in the init RD scripts in order to bootstrap the thing off the network all the way up through what's the JavaScript, what do we call it in that day? Ajax, right? What was the, what was the Ajax request that I needed to like, you know, charge a credit card and I integrated pin pads and debit machines and, and scanners and receipt printers. Like it was just a blast using open source to build this entire stack all the way down to like, how do you pixie boot a machine off the network to, you know, how do I, you know, read a debit card and use PHP to process a debit card on the network. And it was just crazy, crazy times. I used open source apps. You know, if you think about like you have the LAMP stack on one side that I was using, which was all the infrastructure of how to build apps. So, you know, your programming language, your runtime environments, your databases, your operating system. But I also used open source for all the apps that we used to run the business. So every time there was something that we needed, that wasn't core, like that whole point of sale system. Every time we had something that was ancillary, like we needed a wiki for our employees. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, go pick up MediaWiki. We need a ticketing system. Like, oh, I remember, uh, what was it, Mantis. I used Mantis, the PHP open source ticketing system. And so for every one of the things that we needed for all those different apps, I would have an open source um, product that I would be using. You know, I think it was Joomla we were using for the website. And I would go in and I would kind of hack, hack them up quite a bit, right? 
And as, as many of us have been known to do, right, I would go in and, for example, off, I, I wanted single sign-on for, you know, these retail employees. And so I would go, and most of them didn't have anything, like, reasonable for single sign-on. So I'd kind of, like, go dig in. The first thing I'd do is, like, I'd find the auth function somewhere deep in some auth module, and I would rip out the function that was there and write my own to authenticate against an LDAP uh, server that I had stood up. And, and so I kind of cobbled all these things together, but of course, this was fairly predictably, like it was really fragile and it was like a security nightmare. Cause you think about like, I could, I could barely upgrade any of this, any of these apps anymore because I had kind of hacked them so much. And so, you know, and this was in the days, you know, to, you know, the early to mid 2000s where like you could sort of still get away, sort of maybe without patching everything like every day. And, but it was, it was a security nightmare and it was a maintenance and operational nightmare. And so it was really hard to actually get what I wanted operationally out of these applications, just trying to cobble them all together in the way that I was. You know, it was interesting when we when we started then my next company, which was Tulio in 2008, it was kind of a different era. Cause I remember we were starting the company, so starting from scratch, you know, all new infrastructure to build. And, you know, I kind of assumed that, oh, okay, well I go pick up Mantis and, and you know, Joomla and, and MediaWiki and all this sort of stuff again. But when I looked around in 2008, I was like, well, wait a minute, there's all these great SaaS applications, right? Instead of Mantis, well, I, I think you could use Zendesk for ticketing. And instead of, you know, MediaWiki, it was like, well, Google's got a wiki. And, you know, so for all the pieces, uh, all the applications that we need to run the business, it was like, well, do I want to be maintaining the open source thing again and dealing with the security issues and the, and the maintenance and all that? Or do I just want to pay a company and pretty low amount of money to just run the applications for us, build it, and the roadmap will keep progressing and they'll operate it for us. And every time it came down to it, I generally made the decision you know what, I think I'd just rather pay this monthly subscription fee and call it problem solved as opposed to. And so that's why I gave that talk in 2010. I was like, hey, I think open source, you know, might be in trouble for a lot of what open source has been used, especially if that application went. Because SaaS is such a compelling value proposition and it's cheap enough that it is a compelling answer. But the interesting thing, I think, it's like the threat and the opportunity, because you can say, well, that's the application layer. What about the infrastructure layer? What about that LAMP stack? How is that LAMP stack doing? You know, or all the parallels, whether, you know, say it would be, you know, Node or, you know, other languages or Go or whatever. Is Go even open source? I think it is, yeah. yeah. Even though Google, it's third of their name, right? <laughs> so what I sort of realized was that at the application layer, it does feel kind of dead to me. I'll be honest. I don't think in 2019, for most workloads, like taking an open source app and using it will be a better outcome for a company than potentially just paying a few dollars a month and getting something from a SaaS. Now, I believe in the, the power of the freedom that you get. However, as a pure business value proposition of, of getting value for time and money spent, I actually think SaaS is fantastic. But then the other thing that's interesting is the infrastructure layer. You can ask the same question, right? Because, well, you know, it used to be, uh, you know, at the infrastructure layer that, for example, databases, you would run your own databases. But now, of course, you've got Google and, and, and Amazon and Microsoft who will run a cloud database for you and change it so that, you know, you just pay for gigs and bandwidth and, and storage and they run it for you instead of you running it yourself. That presents a really interesting question because I think the fundamental truth of, of software circa 2019, or at least in the past decade, has been that because of the rich tooling, most of which is open source, by the way, it's gotten easier and easier and easier to build software, both because of uh, open source tooling as well as um, hosting and various things like that. It is easier than ever to build software. However, because of the global nature of our customer bases and billions of people online in every country, it is getting harder to operate. So, and that is really interesting. And that is another compelling value proposition for infrastructure as a service vendors 
We say, look, we will operate it for you. You build it, we operate. And having this abstraction that says, put your data here, we will give you five nine SLAs, we will give you this kind of durability guarantee, we will give you this response time guarantee, and you just focus on building and we focus on operating, it's actually a pretty compelling value proposition. And I think you actually see this, right? You see this in a lot of companies that started as open source. And it used to be, you know, 20 years ago, the Red Hat open source business model was we will build software and then we'll train you in how to use it and we'll, you know, that's the revenue model, you know, training and support. And now the revenue model of open source companies is we built it, but now we'll operate it for you too. And you see like Mongo, right, with hosted options there. And so I think the true opportunity in open source is to build great software, but don't just focus on the building of the software and, and, and believe that when you click the, you know, download the tarball link is like the end of your, is the end of your delivery of that to the customer. I believe that actually operating it for customers is tremendously valuable. And I think if the open source community doesn't embrace that somehow, it doesn't have to be via, a, you know, a corporation, but somehow make it easy for customers to actually not just download it, but also to host it and have it operated for them, that the open source world will certainly be at risk of being dominated by infrastructure as a service vendors who will not just build, but also operate software. And for some of that software, it is going to be open source. And I think that's the reality was that, you know, companies can use open source software to then go build service offerings on top of. And that's clearly well-trodden territory. And, you know, open source companies can be really happy that their software is being used at scale to power tremendous workloads. Or some open source communities may be annoyed by that because like, hey, look, here's a company making a lot of money off of the work that we did. And, you know, open source communities have the ability to change their licensing if they want to, if that truly annoys them or not. But I think that's the reality that open source faces is that companies and customers and developers want software operations to be taken care of because it is so complex to operate software these days at global scale with fault tolerance and you know transparent scaling and cross data centers and all of this adds tremendous complexity to building, not just building, but scaling and operating internet scale software, that the true opportunity is to solve that problem, not just the build. Those are some great insights, Jeff. I was thinking back to college days when I built a Gen 2 box from scratch and my goal was to do everything open source and to run my life off open source software. But then when I started a business, I quickly found that installing drivers just to print a document sometimes would <laughs> trip me up really bad and the Libre office wasn't quite up to snuff. And I started finding great value in things like Windows and, and Mac OS solve those things for you. And at the same time, I still found great value in going deep and understanding at the very low levels about how computers work and I think open source gives that great gift. And so one of the questions I had for you is those who are starting their journey, maybe starting their first business, how do they uh, make that balance between how much do I go into open source software versus the SaaS? I think part of it is um, budget, but uh, do you have any advice on how a company can evaluate what are the the key things that they should probably pull out and and just use a SaaS service versus getting by with open source? I mean, in some ways, it's a question of which parts of the business scale with your like revenue or your success. But so it's a fundamental part of your business. Like, let's say you're selling, just let's, let's imagine you're, you're selling uh, storage. Yeah, you probably are going to be really sensitive to how much it costs for you to, to store uh, and serve a, a you know, gigabyte of, of, of data. And so there is an area where you probably are going to be very focused on how do I do that efficiently and how do I do that at scale and what does 10x my current volume look like and 100x and 1000x my volume look like and those are areas where you need to give a lot of thought 
and you need to uh, probably leverage open source and probably do a lot of building to make it as efficient as possible. But then you look at other parts of your business where you're like, well, like let's say ticketing for your help desk. You're like, well, you know, yes, it's going to scale with my business. You know, I have more tickets and more customers and things like that. But at the same time, like it's not scaling linearly, hopefully. And it's also not a core component of my cost of goods sold, right? And so that's a place where you just say, look, look, do I want to be constantly in the trenches in the operational aspects of this thing or do I just want to pay someone else to do that? And so I mean, that's the continual trend of technology, right? Is to take the layers that we've historically used. And you know, I like to think of this as the, the composting of technology. But right? you think about every old technology gets kind of thrown to the bottom of the compost heap and just sort of dissolves away and you no longer think about it, right? If you go back to the very beginning of computers, you know, if you were writing software, you would have to target the very hardware that you know it was going to run. And there were a lot of different hardware platforms, and so you'd, you'd write software for a very specific hardware platform. And then, you know, two things happened, right? One is operating systems came about, right? So instead of targeting the hardware as much, you could kind of start to target the operating system. And then you got standardization on x86. And then you got ANSI too, right? And so you got like a bunch of things that kind of standardized it. Once you had those things in place, as developers, we didn't really have to think about hardware very much anymore. Unless you were really in the lowest level details like building compilers and things like that. For everybody else, you no longer had to think about the hardware layer. But you still had to care about, for example, the operating system. Often, like especially if you're building a window, like a, a, a GUI type application, let's just say, right? Um, even though ANSI took care of a lot of the lower lower level stuff. And then, you know, you start thinking about, okay, well, now we're operating in the cloud. And so now, you know, you throw an application on EC2, you're not thinking about the hardware anymore. You're not even thinking about really the network that much anymore. And but you, you still have to think about the operating system, right? Okay, well, I know this is going to run on Linux, so therefore there's some things I'm going to do, or this is going to run on Windows, there's some things I'm going to do over there. Well, now you look at functions as a service. You know, the whole Lambda serverless move. And there, it's like, well, I don't even know what operating system it's running on. I don't know where it's running. I don't know what hardware it's running on. I don't know what OS it's running on. All I know is that here's 20 lines of JavaScript, and they're going to run somewhere and produce an output that goes somewhere. And so it's like, as technology progresses every step of the way, you start to compost the lower layers. And as a developer, stop caring about them and stop needing, stop needing to really care about them in order to actually build the business value that you're looking to get out of it. And, um, and look, that's a very useful thing. In many ways, it's, it's ironic, right? In many ways, we've used Moore's Law very wastefully. So you think about, like, we had, when I was in college, I had a word processor in Microsoft Word, running my Windows 95 computer, right? And you look at what we have today with Google Docs. You know, with Google Docs, I have the same experience. It's not like, you know, the word processing got, you know, a hundred or a million times faster in the last 25 years. Like, no, it's only so fast that you can type. It's constrained by your typing, mostly, right? But it's not like the, the you you know everything about this software got so much faster. I'm like, no, we just are wasteful in the abstraction layers that we've put between things. And now every time I type, it's like there's network activity involved, and you know there's like thousand computers are processing every keystroke in this thing called the cloud, right? It's like no, no we just actually use Moore's law to actually add abstraction after abstraction that enables us to build more powerful and build more quickly, but not necessarily execute more quickly. Now, there's some domains where that is true, like you know, machine learning or computer vision or what like that. Those are high performance type applications, but for most things that we use every day, it's like we've consumed all the benefits of Moore's Law to create abstractions to make our lives as developers better. And now I think you're starting to see too, our lives of our customers better too, because of the ease of which you can buy software and put in your credit card and just buy it over the network as opposed to like having to install it locally and all this kind of stuff, um, which is um thing. So my advice to, to any entrepreneurs from starting companies, you should 
ask where the core value of your company lies, and you should ask about what parts of your company scale linearly or, or extra linearly with your growth as a company, and really focus your energy on building and innovating and using open source in those areas. And then areas that aren't like that, that aren't core and that aren't, aren't going to scale in the same way, that's where you just want to pay someone to do it for you. So Jeff, if you can close us out with some parting thoughts about open source in general. So for those who are in the open source community and they're just starting out and they're trying to navigate this gigantic world of quote unquote open source and, and trying to learn how to be um, a contributor and be a good citizen of the open source community, do you have any tips or suggestions about how they can get started and how they can accelerate their learning curve and, and be a, a good contributor? I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I never contributed open source. I don't think that anyone would have wanted the code that I wrote, the, the hacks that I would have put in place. Um, but I also was sort of like, I was, I was an entrepreneur. And so I was always focused on like, how do I build on top of this as opposed to how do I build the software itself. But what I would say is that there's a lot of great tools out there. First of all, I mean, GitHub has completely changed the nature of contributing and building, finding. It's made it a lot easier. It's made it a lot more accessible. And so obviously that's fantastic. I think that, you know, we have, for example, in Twilio Quest, which is our online learning platform, we have a module for learning how to become a, an open source developer. So I think that's an interesting resource. Maybe we can provide the link to that. The other thing that I would, the, the, the meta point that I would say around contributing to open source and being part of the open source community is number one. The reason to do it, in my opinion, is two. One is to learn, and two is to create software that you love. And life is too short to, do, to, to build things that you don't love. I've learned that as an entrepreneur multiple times. So I'll focus on building things that, that you love, that you viscerally feel like the world needs. And by contributing to that open source project, you are contributing to something that you care is making the world better. And if you do that, it won't matter if that software gets used, if it, even if it doesn't, and even if it makes money for you or for someone else, or if you get a corporate sponsor for that project or anything like that, because you will find this intrinsic motivation and satisfaction from having uh, created that software and having it live. The second thing that I would say is open source is a community and each project is a community. Just, it's, it's like a microcosm of the entire uh, world, a microcosm of the online world and the offline world. And so find a community that you love because that's a major part of the open source experience is being a part of a community. And look, there's a lot of communities out there that are probably not so welcoming and not so healthy and just avoid them. You know, life's too short to deal with jerks. And so find communities, just like a company you might decide to work for, you know, you vet that company and you decide, is it a culture I like? And is they on a mission that I like? Well, I think the same thing goes for open source. Vet, the, vet a community. If you're gonna contribute your time, especially when you're not being compensated for it, you should make sure that it's doing it with people who you respect and you're gonna learn from because that is, I have to believe that's the main reason to do it. And so pay attention. You know, pick the communities you decide to contribute to. And like I said, if you don't like, you can be a user of open source software without contributing back. And I know it's not common to say like, you can do that because obviously open source, one of the points is to contribute back, but you don't have to feel that you have to contribute back to communities that are not aligned with your values or not aligned with you know, the people you want to associate with. So if you're going to contribute your time to a community, you should find a community that really resonates with you and take the time to do that. Yes, Jeff, I definitely agree with that. I remember when I was starting out, one of my misconceptions was that contributing to open source meant that I needed to contribute to something huge like the Linux kernel or something like that. But there are so many small projects that just get a single task done, like, for example, writing um, something automatic to a, um, to a spreadsheet, for example. Uh, maybe you're 
trying to manage your bills more efficiently. There's all sorts of projects that do all sorts of things. And I believe Jeff's advice is, is very sound. And also around the communities, I've seen these non-welcoming communities firsthand. And I just would encourage you not to be discouraged. You know, it's just like any other human endeavor. You have the good and the bad. It's just that sometimes in some of these communities, the bad bubbles up quickly. quickly. But don't let that discourage you. And I think both Jeff and I uh, wish you a fantastic voyage and your open source uh, journey. And hopefully we'll see you over at OzCon. And thanks again, Jeff, for joining us on the podcast and Thank you. sharing your time and your experience. I'm sure that it will touch many lives and a lot of developers leveled up because of your, your words. And yes, check uh, show notes, please. We'll have links to everything that was mentioned here. And happy hacking. We have a great update for you today for the DX Automator. Just to remind you, the DX Automator is a tool to help you manage multiple GitHub repositories. We've added a new feature that allows you to apply the Rice algorithm that was developed by Intercom. There'll be a link in the show notes about how that algorithm works. And basically, the idea is you have a whole bunch of open issues and PRs across multiple repos, and you're trying to figure out which one you should work on next. And by applying this labeling algorithm that we've come up with, you can utilize those labels in order to calculate a score. And then you can use that score to determine what you should work on next. So if you want to check it out, head on over to github.com slash syngrid slash dx automator and download it and check it out. And please let us know how it's helping you to manage your multiple GitHub repos and let us know if there are any features you'd like to see in the new automator by adding an issue. Today's Some Coding Required sponsor is Twilio Signal. It is Twilio's customer and developer conference. It is where we explore the intersection of technology, innovation, and communications. It's two days, August 6th and 7th at Moscone West in San Francisco. There's going to be talks, networking, learnings, and I believe even before I joined Twilio in February, it was a conference that I attended every year. The energy there is amazing. The speakers are always great. I always come out of there with my brain buzzing with information. And this year, you know, if you join a little bit earlier, the day before, you can participate in a super class where you get to go learn new Twilio skills using the Twilio Quest platform. Super classes are also amazing. They're a ton of fun. It's a gamified way of learning about how to do communications in your apps. Highly recommended. Also, there's going to be some great entertainment there. There's going to be Mindy Kaling there from the Office Fame and Macklemore, Grammy Award winning artist. There's going to be some fantastic developers from Southwest, Microsoft, Pinterest, Twitch, so many. It's going to be fantastic. I really suggest that you give it a shot and join us there. It'll be great to meet you. If you do happen to be in town, hit me up at hashtag some coding required. I'll have some stickers there for you and I'd love to meet you in person.